You know, preaching is, is no light matter, and I can't think of a more fitting song to sing right before the Word of God is opened and proclaimed, but not just for the proclaimer, but for the hearer as well. For us, the Word of God to hit its mark, we need the Spirit of God at work in our hearts, bringing that Word to bear. And this morning, we continue or we'll finish up our brief look at Jude. So if you would go ahead and take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Jude, you will find it's the very book before the book of Revelation, so next to the last book of the Bible. As you know, these past couple of weeks we've been talking about Jude, and I think that the Lord I Need You song is so fitting uh, in Jude addressing how do we deal with false teachers among us, how do we spot what is untrue, and how do we square it with what we know to be true. Well, we need the Spirit of the living God at work in our hearts for one, We need the Word of God laid bare before us so that we see the authority of Scripture itself and not listen to people who are claiming to teach it and teach it in a way that we know is subversive to the words written in the book. Uh, There's a very simple way to test what is false, dear friends. It's to look at the Word of God and ask, what does it say? And when we see the ethic displayed in, in God's Word or we see the commands displayed in God's Word, no matter how unpalatable or how much we might not even like it, it doesn't matter. It becomes clear to us this is the way. <laughs> if any of you have watched The Mandalorian, that's kind of the slogan throughout the whole series, this is the way. And we very much can look at this Word in front of us this morning and we say, no matter what society or culture says, this is the way, and we follow it. And so, in that way, it's simple. Now, what Brad is not saying is that it's always easy, because sometimes the people we have to contend, uh, well, the, the person in front of us, obviously, we're wrestling with powers and spiritual or spiritual power, spiritual power, whatever I'm trying to say, you know, out of Ephesians 6. I can't get it out. It's stuck in there. We wrestle not with flesh and blood. Let's go with that one. That's easy to say. We understand that we are contending against ideas and philosophies, but sometimes with people that we care about and we don't want to alienate. And yet, the task before us is simple in theory, but yes, can be difficult in practice. That doesn't give us a get-out-of-jail-free card. We still have to contend for the truth. So this morning, we're continuing to look at Jude as he calls us to persevere in the faith and continue to contend and to stand firm in what we know, and then to be reminded of the rich love of God and this rich, beautiful doxology that comes at the end of this letter. So, beloved of God, follow with me now in Jude, verse 17 to 25. This is God's infallible and errant word. But you, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forever. 
Amen. So ends the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Father, thank You for this brief but difficult but so important little letter. Thank You for the passage in front of us this morning. May it transform us, I pray. May we be renewed, I pray. May we be strengthened to contend. But may we, having interact with this word, leave here never the same. Not because we've heard a good sermon, but we are confronted with a magnificent Savior. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. We live in a culture of infidelity, and I don't have to convince you of this. So you just have to observe. Just look around you, and you can see the, just the intense infidelity that defines who we are as a people. Of course, the easiest place to see it, I shouldn't, maybe shouldn't, easiest is the wrong word, but a very clear place that we see it is in politics, right? We see it in politics and politicians. Politicians make promises or they outright lie or they don't fulfill promises. We see men and women who run these campaigns and who promise all these things and who don't deliver. So they run a campaign built on dishonesty and infidelity. It's wrong. They don't do what they say they're going to do and sometimes intentionally so. We see infidelity in relationships, right? I remember when Rachel and I were in pre-engagement counseling with Bill Rife, and he looked at us and said, you two who are going to love each other more than anybody else in the world, you're going to hurt each other more deeply than anybody else can hurt you. And if it was a sobering when we were, you know, in 24 years old and had no idea really what we were getting into, and, and so when we see relationships, things happen in relationships. Infidelity happens. We say hurtful things. We, we choose self and, and comfort over the other person. We choose convenience and ease over the other person. Beloved, yes, that is a matter of infidelity. But dare I say, we, it's easy to see it in other people, right? But the mirror before us is the Word of God. We see infidelity in ourselves. We see it in ourselves. What We choose convenience. We choose comfort. We choose expediency over what is right. And maybe if you don't, I certainly do. I'm guilty. Guilty as charged in those things. So we look in our culture, we can see infidelity everywhere. We see it everywhere. And so we ask ourselves then, okay, if we can identify infidelity, what does it mean to be faithful? What does it mean to be faithful? Well, you know, a good biblical way to think about it is fighting for truth, whatever the odds may be. Standing for truth, no matter what tide is coming against us. But it also means humble service. It means obedience when selfishness and disobedience might be easier or more pleasing. To be faithful means to stand for what is right and to do what is right, whether someone's looking or not, whether it's received well or not, whether you're applauded or not, or whether it feels good or not. It's doing what is right because it is right. It means living out the truth of Christ. So when we think about Jude, this book, why do I bring up fidelity or infidelity? Because faithfulness is the heart of this book. That's what this book is about. He's challenging the church to be faithful by contending for the truth once for all delivered to the saints. He's challenging the false teachers for being unfaithful by twisting God's Word, by twisting commands, by twisting God's sexual ethic, by subverting God's authority. So he's getting at the heart of this is unfaithful, what they're doing, and this is what faithfulness looks like, kind of what we've read this morning already. Really, 
there's a simplicity to the Christian life. There really is when we think about it. I'm not saying that all the ideas in Christianity are easy. I mean, the union of the divine nature with the human nature is a mystery. But there is a simplicity to the Christian life. To flourish and contend for the truth, we must be faithful. 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 Now, that doesn't make light of the struggle. That doesn't mean the struggle will be easy. But we also mustn't complicate it. Sometimes we think, we overthink the issue until we try to make it these, all this kind of mishmash of complicated things, when in reality, what did Paul say? He said, I sought to know nothing before you but Christ and Him crucified, to bring a simple message of the crucified, risen Lord, who is now authoritative over all things, and we live in submission to that. I love that Paul does that, that he brings a simplicity to the ministry. We don't have to know every theological truth to be right. We just need to know Christ and Him crucified and live out that life, denying ourselves, taking up our cross daily, and following Him. That's the point. And so Jude challenges us here, in a sense, to walk in the light as Jesus is in the light. And this letter, now I'll be honest with you, it's not without difficulties. If you've studied Jude at all and read a little bit about it, you know there, there are hard texts in here. There's hard Greek in here. So this is a letter of complexity, but it's also a letter of simplicity. We mustn't let things distract us from the simple message of faithfulness, and we mustn't let things wheedle their way in to sow seeds of doubt in the reliability of the Word of God. The Word of God is before us, and it is calling us to be faithful. So Jude reminds us of the lordship of Christ, and it challenges us to live under His authority in the imitation of Him. And if we're doing that, if we're seeking faithfulness, living under the authority of Christ, submitting ourselves to His Word, immersing ourselves in His Word, being committed to the communion of the saints, beloved, we're going to see false teaching when it comes. I'm not saying we're perfect. I'm not saying we can't be duped. So don't hear Brad saying, well, if you're a Christian, you're beyond being duped. That's not the point. The point is, when we stay immersed in truth, we see what is real, true, good, godly, beautiful, and right, we're going to be able to spot what's wrong. So with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see, and it's this, that we must contend for the faith with the fallen and the faults. That we must contend for the faith with the fallen and the faults. And so, as I, said, as I alluded to earlier, uh, Jude is kind of laying out the spiritual battle that we find ourselves locked into, that we are dealing with as the body of Christ. And when we think about those who are fallen, and, and I'm using fallen in the way that Jude is talking about here, those who have been maybe confused or duped by a false teaching, those who just need to be corrected. So that's what I mean by fallen, make sure we're clear on our terms. When, we, when our response to both those who are duped or confused or misled or misunderstanding, and with those who are false, the, the response to those are the same. It's faithfulness. Faithfulness with the Word of God. Faithfulness with the truth to do what is right with to rightly divide the Word of truth before those two different groups. Now, as we make our way into the text this morning, starting in verse 17, verses 17, 18, and 19, Jude is kind of coming back around to those who are false and kind of making some statements about the false people or false teachers. When we look at this, we recognize 
have been in the church from the very beginning. From her inception, almost immediately, false teachers were coming in to subvert the message of God. And so, when we have this word before us with clarity, we have Romans and, and Jude and, and Hebrews and the Gospels and all these New Testament letters before us, and we can understand them and we can see the gospel clearly communicated, we should praise God that men and women in, in years and years and years gone by have contended for the truth for the very purpose that now you and I have the truth, that we can stand on the truth, proclaim the truth, believe the truth, and live the truth. So we look at this, and it's fascinating. It's so awesome to remember that, yes, false teachers have been among us from the beginning, but true men and women have stood in the trenches and said, I will contend for the truth, and I will do so by the power of the living God. May we in 2022 and beyond, if Jesus tarries, stand in the trenches and contend for the truth by the power of the living God. That's what we're called to. So Jude begins this paragraph out. He says, but you must remember, beloved. Again, he's noting that the, the church this is beloved by Jude. He's marking them out as he loves them, but also remember, they are loved by God. So their primary identity marker is beloved. That's the first thing we should know about them. And if you're in Christ this morning, that's the first thing that's true about you. You're beloved by God. And isn't it interesting that, of course, that Satan wants to whisper things in your ear and wheedle his way in and make you doubt those things? Because do you know when we truly believe, truly and earnestly believe that we are loved by God primarily, it frees us to live our lives for him in a way that would be considered radical. Because I'm accepted by the one I need, with whom I need acceptance. I'm loved by the one whose love I desperately need in the very depths of my soul. And when I'm convinced of that, I can live for him with abandon. And it's, it's such an encouragement. You know, do, if you're like me, my heart needs these texts so often to be reminded. Whatever the world may think of Brad, whatever so-and-so may say or think of Brad, I am beloved by God. And that is an encouraging thought. He says here, you must remember quite literally but you must be reminded it's an imperative verb. An imperative verb is an express command. He's expressly commanding them to remember something. And, of course, he tells you exactly what he wants them to remember, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's expressly commanding them to remember, but not just remember, the way that the New Testament and the Old Testament reads. When you have this imperative to remember, it's an imperative to remember and respond. Remember what the apostles told us about those coming into the church. And what is their response? Contend for the truth. So they're to remember, call to mind, and say, oh yes, now my job, my duty, my obligation is to contend for the truth. And I love that he says the predictions of the apostles or the prophecies of the apostles or the foretelling of the apostles, however you want to read that. The apostles told the church, hey, this is coming. So I'm going to read a few references, and I'm going to read them quickly, so you can just jot them down as I read. Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian church. Um, that's 19. He says, I know, in verse 29, that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. That's Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30. 
That's Paul speaking to the Ephesian church. In 1 Timothy, Paul says something similar. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says in verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings by demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So Paul warns Timothy there, and again in 2 Timothy, Paul gives a second warning in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. You could go to 2 Peter chapter 2 and 1 Peter and so on and so on. I could read you several more references where what is Jude alluding to? He's alluding to what the apostles had clearly written and told. This is going to happen. So what Jude is seeing, he's not copying another letter. He's not borrowing ideas. He's simply addressing exactly what Paul said in Acts and in Timothy, what Peter said in 2 Peter and 1 Peter, and so forth and so on. So we look at this. We look at what Jude is doing. He's reminding us to go back to the Word of God to see what God's Word says and respond accordingly. And this is where we have to know, beloved. We have to know this. As Christians, we have to be reminded and convinced of this. Where truth is proclaimed, false people will come to work mischief. Jude calls them ungodly scoffers. Because as long as Christians, as long as God's people are in this world, there's always going to be a voice from the culture that says, did God really say? It's going to keep happening. And so how do we live? How do we respond to that? Well, first and foremost, we feed ourselves on the truth so that when we hear something, we can say, that's not right. And here's how I know it's not right. Here's what the Word of God has to say about that. And so this is so vital that we understand that as long as truth is proclaimed in the world, people are going to try to subvert it. It's just the way it's going to be. What the apostles say that is, they said to you in the last times, there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. So scoffers following ungodly passions or lusts, we could just call it that. It's just lust, the lusts of their own minds or hearts or flesh. They're following these lusts. And then he describes them, and Jude is, has an affinity for triads and groups of threes. He describes these ungodly scoffers as those causing divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Now, beloved, I want to impress upon you how sobering a description that is. I'll read it again. Causing divisions... Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. You can't have a worse description than that. He uses this divisiveness. Remember when Paul says, warn the divisive brother once or twice and then put him out. Paul saw divisiveness as, as anathema in the church. So much so that he said, if one is divisive, put them out. Now think about that in the litany of sins that Paul addressed, especially in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, addressing immorality, addressing even adulterous affairs, and it was the divisive brother, he said, to put out. 
Because we are called to be a unified body, one body under one head, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one renewal through Christ. And all this, the unity of Christ is tight. And people who bring division, he says, to put out. So these people, he calls them divisive. This word worldly here is really interesting. It's kind of built off the same word uh, of the soul in Greek. The word for soul in Greek is psuche. This is kind of built off that, but it's kind of the idea to literally render it would be natural. Natural. And what does Paul mean by natural? Well, he means that it's natural. There's nothing supernatural going on. It's someone given to the natural world. It's someone who gives themselves to what they see, what they taste, what they feel, what they touch. Someone who's not thinking about the other world so much as they're just thinking about this one. And so when we translate it worldly, that's precisely what Jude is getting at, that these people are worldly. They have no real affinity for the things of God. They're in it for money. They're in it for pleasure. They're in it to to make a name for themselves, to build a reputation. But then he gives the final nail in the coffin to them as to how do we consider these people. He says, he says of them that they are devoid of, of the Spirit. Now, beloved, what he's telling us, what he's telling you, what he's telling me, people who peddle this don't have the Spirit of God. They're not a part of God's people. They're not in line with the Spirit because the Spirit is not in them. And though they parade as true, let me say this as plainly as I can, though they parade as true, they are dead. They are dead inside. They are whitewashed tombs. They have nothing. They offer nothing. They give nothing. And they take everything. That is a thief. That is someone who is masquerading as a prince of light so he or she can get all that they can gain in this life. But what has Jesus said about those people? Truly, you've received your reward. And woe to them on the day of judgment, and woe to any who would, leave the, who would lead the children of God astray, parading as people of truth. If you're in Christ this morning, you are a man or woman of truth. You have the life of Christ in you because the Spirit of God dwells in you. The light of Christ is in you, and the saltiness of Christ is on you. So go and be salty, not in the angry sense got to make sure I clarify that. I'm not telling you to go be mad. The pastor told us to go be angry today. I don't know. Um, go and be salty. Be light-filled. Let the love of Christ shine through you. Let the truth of Christ emanate from you. And we do it all in freedom because we've been freed from the bonds of sin, made new creatures in Christ, and because we are the beloved of God. And beloved Whatever they come at us with, what are they going to take from us? They're going to take our house? They're going to take what, our possessions? Are they going to take our lives? They may take that. They may. But they cannot take from us the marker of beloved by God. Now, I don't want to lose my house. I don't want to lose my life. I want to watch my children grow and, God willing, get married and have children and see their children grow and watch them all walk in the admonition of the Lord but I don't have to fear. Death is not my enemy. Apathy is. Falsehood is. So he says to, moving on here, 
verse 20, he makes a transition. He's been talking to the faults, kind of who are the faults, again, just reiterating. But then he, he begins to switch to how do we deal with, how do we who are faithful, how do we grow in our faithfulness, and how do we deal with those who have fallen for these lies and who are confused? So in this sense, here's what I would tell us. This is where we have to be imitators of Christ and choose meekness. We have to be faithful with the broken, and we have to be faithful with the wicked. If someone has bought into a lie, our first response should not be to just do this. Well, they're gone. It'd be easy, but maybe our first response is to fight for that brother or sister, to contend with the ideas that they have. That's not easy, especially if, you have a, if it's a family member or a close friend and, and you look at them and you know they're deceived and you're trying to help them. Yes, the flesh says, just write them off. It'll be easier, and it would be easier. But our heart, Jude says, no, contend with their souls, with the truth of God. What he does here, this is just a minor point, but you see that but you in verse 20, literally the first word in this sentence in the Greek Testament is the pronoun you. Now, why is that important? Well, because Jude is making sure we understand that there's a new emphasis in these next few verses. When Greek writers wanted to add an emphasis, remember, they had no exclamation point. So either they put a command in the imperative, which is the uh, tense of command, or they slap the, the subject word on the front of the sentence where it would make no sense, but they, when they throw it on the front of the sentence, they say, this is the emphasis. And this passage in the Greek Testament, it literally reads, you, you beloved, be building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Spirit. You keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy. So he's building an idea. He's, he's making sure we understand that now he's been dealing with what is false. Now he's turned his attention to the faithful. Obviously, the beloved clarifies who he's talking about here. Again, he's talking about God's people. But what's he doing right here? But you, beloved, and he begins to tell us, what does it mean to contend for the faith? We've used that phrase a lot. But what does it mean, and, and how does it begin? How do, how do we contend for the faith? And Jude kind of lays this out for us very quickly. He, he says that we contend for the faith by building ourselves up in holy faith, and then Praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So he's beginning, he gives us this description, but I want you to notice something right off the bat. What does Jude do for us by giving us a little bit of Trinity here? He says, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, and waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Binding that trinity together, Jude, who loves triads, he brings it together here by recognizing, contending for the faith. How do we dig our roots more deeply? Well, it's not just going to happen. It's going to happen as we press into the trinity and we glean from the trinity and we live under the authority of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When he says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, we need to understand what Jude is saying here. Be building yourselves up in your most holy faith. The most holy faith here is the foundation. So if we think of faith as the foundation, the faith, once we're all delivered to the saints, is the foundation. 
And we build our lives on that faith, and we begin to grow on that faith, and we begin to stand on that faith. We trust in the Lord. We believe His promises, and that's how we build ourselves up in our most holy faith. We immerse ourselves in God's precepts. We give ourselves to the Word. You know, it's not it's not too simple to be reminded that how do we grow in faith? Well, it has to start in the Word of God, that immersing ourselves in the precepts of God. It has to be brought along through prayer that we are giving ourselves to praying with one another, for one another, for ourselves, but also, beloved, for the communion of the saints. We are, this morning, we have gathered together to worship God. This gathered body is not inconsequential. This gathered body is not an add-on. This is something that's essential for us as we grow in our faith, which is why it's essential for us to be with one another Sunday after Sunday, fellowshipping together, encouraging one another, exhorting one another, sharing tidbits of the Word of God with one another, praying with one another, just seeing each other's faces, just the hug or the handshake, all these things that foster relationships so that we know that when I'm contending for the truth, I have a body of believers I can point people to to say, come here and you will hear the truth and you will meet people who are convinced of the truth. All these ways are ways that we grow in our own faith because we encourage one another. When I watch some of you or I hear some of your stories of of how you've trusted the Lord and what the Lord is doing, it's an encouragement to me. I'm always glad I heard it because I'm reminded of how big God is and what God can do. So the communion of the saints is absolutely essential, which is why the writer of Hebrews said, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Don't do it which is why Acts 2 notes the fellowship and the believers were together daily, kind of highlighting how important that is. We can't stress that enough. So building ourselves up in the most holy faith, he says, and praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, what does he mean by this? What does he mean by praying in the Holy Spirit? Well, and since I do not believe that Jude here is making any sort of reference to tongues or whatnot. That's, that Paul addresses that in, in 1 Corinthians. I'm not, that's not what Jude is getting at here. So he's not encouraging them to speak in tongues or anything of that nature. What he is doing, however, is to pray in line with the Holy Spirit's will, to continue to immerse themselves in the Word of God so that they can pray in keeping with what the Spirit's will is. And so, how, what, is, what does that type of prayer look like? Well, it's a prayer that would be based in the Word of God and the promises of God. As we talked about when we went through Daniel, that we are to be looking at the Word and promises of God and praying those back to God. And so, that's what praying in the Spirit means, that we are coming in line with the Spirit in our prayer time. And he says here, keep yourselves in the love of God. That is an express command to keep ourselves in God's love. Why does he make this explicit? Because the world and self will challenge us right there precisely. The world will challenge us to love it. Ourselves will constantly challenge us to love it. And when we love the world and we love the self, we're going to be given to the perversions of the false teachers already listed. Beloved, it is inevitable. 
unless we stay rooted in the objective love of God that is pure and righteous and holy, we will be given to things that are evil. And so he expressly commands us to remain rooted in the Word or in the love of God. And I love how he says this, lest we think we've arrived, that we are waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Reminding us that we wait for mercy. And of course, in Lamentations 3, we learn that His mercies are new every morning. And so every morning, we are waiting for the mercy of God. We are waiting for the mercy of Christ through whom exclusively eternal life comes. Not through any other place. That it is the eternal life of Christ. And when we think about, if, if, you're, if you're in Christ this morning, I will tell you this. As I, say, as I say to myself, before Christ, we absolutely deserve God's wrath. We deserve it. Our sins have merited. We are born defiled. We live lives that justly deserve the wrath of God. But when Christ comes, He does two things. He, t- <coughs> excuse me. he takes the curse upon Himself and appeases the wrath of God, and then He takes our sin And as far as the east is from the west, he removes it from us. And now we stand as creatures who are the product of the mercy of God, redeemed precisely because Christ is merciful. Precisely because Christ is merciful. And here, beloved, we get another triad that you see kind of come out in Jude. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Remain rooted in the love of God and hope in the mercy of Christ. That Pauline triad, faith, hope, and love, Jude brings out right here. Reminding us that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit work so that we might grow in faith, remain rooted in love, and remain hopeful in mercy. What a powerful message Jude gives to us. So Jude also clarifies here how we deal with those who have fallen by the wayside or who have fallen into confusion. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So again, show mercy here in verse 22. It's an, it's an express command. It's a continual act. We are to continue to show mercy so that when people come into our midst, our posture is one of mercy, not judgment. One of mercy, not harshness. One of mercy, not being dismissive, but mercy. To those who doubt, it's interesting. There's a lot of textual argument as if this word means given to disputes or doubt. And I'm not going to get into, this would be a whole another talk if I were to get into all the complexities here. I like the word doubt because Jude is dealing with a group of people within this church who heard the false teachers and were possibly swayed by some of their ideas. And so he's telling those who are true, hey, don't judge them. Don't dismiss them. Treat them mercifully. Contend for the truth with mercy. Bring God's ideas back to the table and contend with them. Show mercy to those who have been confused. Beloved, when we think about a heart of mercy, a heart of mercy is always a good posture to have. With people who are confused or, or misled or, or have questions, mercy is a great way to imitate Christ and to bring them 
back round to the truth. When people question Jesus legitimately, not trying to entrap Him, He answered mercifully. He brought the mercy of God to bear on the situation, and we must do the same. He says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. This has caused some consternation from people. What does he mean by save? He just means rescue. He's not speaking redemptively. We're not, Jude is not telling us to go redeem people because we can't, right? We can't. Jesus is the Redeemer. What He is telling us to do is when you see people who are getting even closer to what would be heresy or anathema, snatch them out of the fire. In other words, be aggressive in trying to save them. Don't let them sit there. Those close to the fire are close to judgment. That's what the fire is supposed to invoke in our minds. Pull them away. How do we do that? With the truth. Bring the truth to bear so that you don't look at it as primarily Brad or or your responsibility. It's the truth of God. Let the truth of God do its work. Just be faithful to proclaim it. But you know what I find encouraging about this? When I think about people who I would deem are close to the fire, sometimes it's easy. I'm just going to confess to you. Sometimes it's easy for me just to write them off and go, they're too far gone. And you know what Jude says? You can get them. You can get them. You can get them. Now, that's not saying you're going to get every one of them, but, but by the mercy of God, you can get some because they can be snatched back from the fire. And beloved, let that encourage our hearts. He says here, Show mercy with fear. What does he mean by that? Of course, the most tempting thing to be would to read that is to show mercy in the fear of the Lord. Really, what I think Jude is driving at is show mercy with fear. Stay sober when you are dealing mercifully with people who have false ideas because you too are not above being duped. Show mercy with fear. Keep the truth out in front. Don't let yourself get sucked into a, a, a conversation where you begin conceding something. It's that, well, just concede that this might be untrue. Don't ever give up truth in a conversation, ever. Don't ever give it up. Don't ever concede it. Because that's how we go down the trail of, de- of deception. Truth is truth, and we don't concede it. So when we show mercy with fear, you know what that means? We need to be generous. We need to be generous, but we need to be wise. We need to be gracious, supremely gracious, but we need to be aware. We need to be humble, supremely humble, but we need to be rooted in what is true. And in that sense, humble and bold. The last thing he says here is hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Uh, This is a very graphic verse in the original and what it implies Um, I'm not going to get into all of it. I am going to at least say it in a way that I think is helpful for us to understand. The garment that Jude has in mind here is a special garment that would be a garment that was worn next to the body. So it's the inner garment, kind of like an undergarment that you would wear under, you'd wear your clothes over it. And as you might imagine, this undergarment worn next to the skin would get stains, stains from all manner of bodily functions that the human body just naturally does. And so it was a pretty nasty garment. And so Jude uses this very graphic image to say, don't sin fouls everything it touches. And so you should hate it so much that you don't even want to be around it, that you keep it away from you because it so desecrates 
that we've got to put it away, constantly put it away, get it away from me, and not even be within reaching distance of it. He's using this picture to say, what is foul, depart from. What is defiled, have no part with. Remove yourself from it and be free of the grip of sin. It's a powerful picture, and it's even more graphic than I'm telling you. I'm trying to be sensitive this morning because it's gross. Jude ends this brief letter by stating the doxology now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This doxology is probably one of the longest ones in the New Testament, actually. It is the longest, or at least it's one of the longest ones in the New Testament. And the heart of this doxology is to remind God's people that God perverts, uh, preserves His people, that now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling, what that doesn't mean is that you never have hardships and trials. Stumbling in this context means judgment. Now, Him who is able to preserve you from judgment, He does that. He preserves you from judgment. And what does that mean? He presents you as blameless before His presence, for the presence of His glory, with gladness or great joy. So in that blamelessness, what does He mean? He means that we're free from condemnation. He means that we now don't stand under wrath. We stand under mercy that we, we are called accepted and approved and loved by God. And that joy, if you're like me, with great joy, joy, I constantly find myself praying David's prayer from Psalm 51 in my hard, dark days. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit in me. But this is exactly what God gives when He gives us blamelessness. He gives us gladness of heart not just mere fleeting happiness, but an eternal joy that cannot be defeated. And I love the way that he ends it. The only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. Our saving, sovereign God. How does he show his glory? Our saving, sovereign God. How does he show his glory? Through the person and work of Jesus Christ. One of the most glorious pictures we have of God in human history is our naked Savior hanging on a cross, beaten beyond belief, proclaiming, it is finished. And there we see the glory of God like we see it nowhere else. The world saw foolishness. The people of God see glory. Faithfulness is standing when sitting is easier. We live in a culture that would bid us to take a seat, dutifully receive all it says as supremely true until that truth gives way to another truth and that truth gives way to another truth and so forth and so on. But see, faithfulness demands that we stand and contend in the face of all these challenges. The culture is never going to be our friend, never, not so long as we hold to the truth of Christ. Now, if we want to be befriended, we yield this and we embrace the culture. But you know, you and I, we're not called to be eloquent. We're not called to be polished. We're not called to be cerebral. We're called to be faithful. Can you be eloquent and polished and cerebral? Sure. But, man, faithfulness to Christ is supreme. Faithfulness and proclamation is supreme. You know, we're also not called to be brash, 
contrary, mean-spirited or critical. No, no, no. We're called to be faithful. That means that we imitate Christ. Jude reminds us that we have this precious gift, this precious gift of truth and gospel reality. And for such a treasure, beloved, we stand when the world around us takes a seat. We contend when the world around us says, be quiet. We shout from the rooftops when all the world would say, no, because Christ is king and the world needs to hear it. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this day and for this time, for this word, for your truth. It's rich, beautiful, faithful. It is a treasure. And I pray that we would live as if it is a treasure, that we would contend for it like it is a treasure, that we would love it like a treasure. Oh God, that we would grow in it. Thank you for its power, its depth, its beauty. And I pray that we would imbibe it and proclaim it to the world. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.